You're listening to Healthcare Now Radio. Stand by for this just in the latest in healthcare innovation and technology trends with your HIT advisor, Justin Barnes. Thank you for tuning in and welcome to This Just In. I'm your host, Justin Barnes. In these half-hour segments, I'll bring you the latest advancements in healthcare, strategy, innovation, and public policy. As always, we're broadcasting from the This Just In studios on the Business Radio X network, as well as the Healthcare Now radio network. And before we dive in with our special show today, I want to take a moment to let everyone know that we'll be broadcasting the This Just In radio show again live from the HIMSS annual conference in Las Vegas on Wednesday, March 7th. From 10 a.m. Pacific to 2 p.m. Pacific. Many more details to come here shortly, but I hope everyone is planning on attending the conference. If you are not, though, you'll be able to stream our radio show live at thisjustinradio.com. We'll have another great slate of CEO, CIO, leading care providers, industry thought leaders, riveting authors, and certainly policymakers joining the show. For this episode, though, my 117th episode, we're going to focus on a new book coming out called Realizing the Promise of Precision Medicine by Paul Serrato and Dr. John Halamka. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Very excited. We're going to do a special episode today, basically a double episode. There was just so much content that we were passing back and forth, um, prepping for the show. And so I couldn't uh, be more excited. Only This is only my second one. We've done a double episode, all, all tied up into one big bow. So very excited about what's before us, guys. So let's dive in a little bit. John, you're very well known in the industry, um, and I've been on the show. You're certainly a great friend of the show. I've been on the show numerous times. But offer the background, people that may not know you that well, offer back a little bit of background on you and where you're from, college, all that good stuff. Wow. It all started when I was 12 years old, and I was a latchkey child in Southern California in the 70s with the heyday of the defense industry. And back then, they threw away all the integrated circuits that didn't t- test good enough for military spec. So as a 12-year-old, I ran around to dumpsters picking up integrated circuits and taught myself analog digital logic and then microprocessors. So when I arrived at Stanford in 1979, I was the first person to have a computer in my dorm room, and the rest is history. <laughs> that Actually, I've never heard that before. That is fascinating. That's awesome. So what drove you to Stanford? Well, think about it late 70s, early 80s, Mm. you just had popular electronics publish the specifications for the Altair 8800. (laughs) You could homebrew your own computer. (laughs) You had the, this is pre-IBM PC, pre-Apple. Everybody in the industry was just starting to coalesce. And Palo Alto just turned out to be that mecca. So what a fabulous opportunity to actually sort of go to school and I did public policy, economics, and biochemistry while the industry was evolving around us. It worked really well. No, that's fascinating. I actually went out there to start Relay Health back in 1999. So uh, I went to, we lived in Palo Alto, started the company in Alameda, and um, I, I love the Valley for what it, uh, how it helps you and, and what you learn and who you collaborate with. So it certainly was a great area, but I love where I live now in the South, so 
that was a great place to be then. Sounds like you were in a similar boat there. So before we, yeah, before we dive into the show a little bit um, and dive into the book, what are a few secrets of your success, John? Because, again, you've done very well. You are all over the place. We do see you everywhere. and We love what you do. But uh, what are a few secrets to your success? Well, so my brain has always done better if I take an issue, dive very deeply into it, mm -hmm. really focus on it. And, you know, that, that kind of approach, I wonder, does it work any longer in 2018 when the average attention span is three seconds or less? Uh, because if you take a problem and you really work it deeply and you really understand the domain, then you can have some unique insights. And I, I think over the course of my life, I've maybe just been in the right place at the right time where the right technology and the right problems to solve came together. Uh, so, so although I'd like to take credit for my sleeplessness and focus, maybe it was more Forrest Gump and just being in that right place at the moment. Right. Well, it helps when you're also all over the place. You happen to be in a lot of places at one time, it seems. So you happen to be, you know, that, that could certainly help your success ratio and rate. Could be, I suppose. <laughs> but also, um, we are in an interesting time, though, and I think you bring up a good point because I've actually changed how I communicate with people, when I communicate, where I communicate, and how I collaborate around, you know, this new dynamic on attention spans and, and how people absorb information and how they want to absorb information. So I know we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but I'd love your your two cents on that because that is changing on how people just, again, absorb information, how they engage even healthcare and how they feel about healthcare. So any quick thoughts there? Well, as you have suggested, I've also changed my mechanisms of interaction. And, you know, I've written 2,000 plus blog entries. Yeah. And what I found is writing 1,000 word blog entries, although it's very satisfying, actually isn't always the best way to communicate with cohorts. So you'll find that I'm much more active on social media now than I ever was. Mm -hmm. So I have my Facebook feed and daily comments on the industry. I have a Twitter feed. I have Instagram. And fine. You know, that gets the message out, although admittedly, I think it's a bit superficial. Yeah, and, and I, I couldn't agree more. That's actually when I did a lot of thought leadership all the way until about 2014 in, in written form, in blogs, uh, in testimonies and so forth. But now I've really shifted heavily. That was where the radio show was born. It was just a new way to communicate, a new way to share thought leadership and also collaborate with others in the industry. And even globally, where we didn't have to sit, you know, and, and write the same write on the same pieces, but also have uh, have access to the show and to to broadcast in a new medium. So uh, I, I agree. And that's kind of one of the ways I've personally evolved. So and, and yeah. I also try to do is recognize that I have people working for me in their 20s. I have people working for me in their 70s. And you have to assume that not one size fits all. And so, yes, I phone, yes, I fax, yes, I email, and yes, I tweet. Yeah. That works. <laughs> Great wisdom there. So, Paul, let's shift a little bit. So how did this book come about? Because uh, it was, I've read several excerpts. This is, this is fascinating, and this book is terrific. So, you know, Realizing the Promise of Precision Medicine, how did you uh, come about there? Actually, the, the, the idea for this book started about 30 years ago. <laughs> Uh, when I was in graduate school, I was working on uh, my final dissertation, my final thesis on biochemical individuality, 
which is actually the biological underpinning for precision medicine. Uh, back then, the word precision medicine didn't even exist. I was talking about the 1980s. But then over the, the decades, I continued to follow the research on genetic individuality and biochemical individuality and so on. And then a few years ago, uh, Obama decided to launch the Precision Medicine Initiative. And once I saw that, I said, okay, it's, this is time to, it's time now to, to publish. Um, so with that in mind, um, a couple of years before the, his announcement, uh, John and I started working together on Information Week Healthcare. He uh, was uh, on our editorial board. So I knew of his expertise in healthcare IT and especially its role in, in personalized medicine. So I approached him and said, would you like to co-author the book? And he said, yep, great. So that was, that was the initial impetus. Uh, and just around that time, I had just finished writing a book for Elsevier on protecting patient information. So I had a good relationship with a, a big name uh, publishing company. So John and I approached him, put together a, a book proposal, and sure enough, the rest is history, as they say. So how long did it take you to write this book? How long? About a year, year and three months. Felt I almost felt like doing another uh, dissertation. It was <laughs> it was really intense for both of us. I can imagine. So let's open with population medicine versus precision medicine. What are the differences there? Okay. Uh, population medicine, typically you're talking about uh, randomized controlled trials in which thousands of patients are, are uh, studied and they might divide uh, the group into one half receives a drug, let's say, and the other half gets a placebo. And then the results are um, pretty, it's Consider the gold standard a randomized controlled trial. The problem with that type of a study is that it gives you results for the average patient. Uh, and there are a lot of patients who are just not average. You know, they fall outside of the realm. And so it tends to result in a one-size-fits-all approach to healthcare. And that really is not enough for a lot of patients who have a unique characteristics who have genetic variants that are different from the from the average so there's, there's a need for for a more personalized approach and that's one of the things that we get into in the book um, one of the examples that that I like to use is randomized controlled trials have proven that giving patients statins uh, if they're at high risk for heart disease reduces the likelihood of them getting a, a heart attack mm -hmm. But then there's another statistic that shows only one in 20 patients respond to a drug like Crestor, which is a statin. So if only one in 20 patients are responding, there are an awful lot of people who are not. So clearly we need a better approach uh, to figuring out what the needs are for patients who respond and patients who don't respond. So that's what, what the Precision Medicine Initiative is all about. That's fascinating. A friend of mine, um, have you heard of culture intelligence by chance? There's a, there's a strategy out there, and it follows this kind of precision medicine um, acumen, but have you heard of that cultural intelligence by chance? No, I haven't. Have you, John? I have not. Okay. I mean, in a so not basically, in a short run, it's, um, it bases study on 
your culture and basically your background. So in dif different ethnicities um, react differently to certain pop to certain drugs or variances in, in different um, uh, chemical calculations and so forth. And it's just basically um, it's 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 fo it follows the lines of genomics, um, but yet along cultural lines. And I mean, so I it's just that actually being I can see that being a type of precision medicine. Exactly, yeah. it is. The the example that that uh, we used, John and I spoke at a precision medicine uh, conference sponsored by Hims back in the summertime, and one of the examples that I use is you take take Mrs. Smith and Mr. Patrick, both of them have um, heart disease, mm -hmm. but Mrs. Smith, um, eighty percent of her heart disease is a result of a genetic uh, abnormality, okay, yeah. whereas ten percent is poor diet, ten percent is stress. Whereas somebody like Mr. Patrick, 50% of it may be the result of psychosocial stress and, and genetics is a very small part of the problem. So obviously those individuals need to be treated very, very differently. And the assessment done on them has, has to be very different to pick out those unique uh, characteristics. Uh, very true. So John, what are a few of the main precision medicine initiatives and programs out there? And you cover some of these in your book, great. So let's talk about those. Yeah, sure, but let me give you a couple of different architectures. Mm -hmm. uh, the example we use in the book is that my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer in December of 2011. There was estrogen positive, progesterone positive, and HER2 negative. She's Korean, was 50 at the time. Shouldn't any doctor or any patient be able to say, of the last 10,000 patients like me, and I don't need their names or their zip codes. There's not a privacy issue. Of the last 10,000 like me, what were their treatments? What were their outcomes? What were the morbidity, mortality, side effects, and those kinds of things? So we have a tool uh, around the 17 Harvard hospitals called I2B2 that enables us to do that kind of query. Show me, for these characteristics, other patients and their outcomes and their drugs and their issues. And we use that to refine her chemotherapy regimen, resulting in cure without the side effect of neuropathy from Taxol. As well, we are seeing that more and more companies, and they're big companies and small companies, there's established multinationals and 26-year-olds in their garages, creating cloud-hosted decision support services, such that you can forward data to them and they will come back with care plans or care information or assessment of whether a drug is good or bad for a given patient based on clinical characteristics like their genome or something in their phenotype. And so there are, again, you know, I don't endorse any particular company, I have no conflict of interest here, mm -hmm. but we're working with a lot of these firms because we think the future is not just going to be your EHR. Epic, Cerner, Meditech, uh, whatever. It's going to be the cloud-hosted services surrounding that EHR that really provide you the guidance to deliver precision medicine. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, so, what are some? So, what about clinical query and Shrine and some of the other items that you initiatives that you talk about in programs? Right. So, with I2B2, it's in effect sending the data not to a common repository, but a application that enables you to query. So you say, how many patients like this are there? And it gives you a number, 47, right? No, no patient identified information. Yep. Send the question to the data, not the data to a repository. And clinical query and shrine are just 
ways of doing that in a much larger scale. Shrine, for example, queries 60 academic medical centers simultaneously. Uh, with clinical query, what we've added to is some features to ITB2 and Shrine that we can directly now enroll patients in clinical trials. Once you find patients like uh, who has this disease and has failed this therapy, you can then immediately get their primary care doctors to get in touch with them so that you can get them into a clinical trial. That's excellent. I love it. That's that's exactly where healthcare needs to shift, and it, it's awesome that's shifting there because I don't see that in a lot of places across the country, even the world. So that's excellent. Um, and for those just tuning in, uh, we're speaking with Paul Serrato and Dr. John Halamka about their new book, Realizing the Promise of Precision Medicine. So, Paul, we touched on this a moment ago, uh, but what is, and just briefly, so I'd love to dive in here a bit, what is the role of genomics in personalized medicine? Okay, it helps to, to distinguish between genetics and genomics because old school genetic testing would typically involve a physician testing for a particular disease, like let's say cystic fibrosis, mm -hmm. where you just look at one gene. Whereas genomics now, we now have the ability to take a patient's cells and look at their entire uh, genetic makeup. So that's 46 chromosomes and about 20,000 genes. And the prices come down way, way down. It's like the last number I saw was $600 to do a, a complete uh, genetic workup. The advantage of doing that is they can now analyze a patient's tumor to look for mutations in that tumor. And then if one of those mutations is effectively resolved with the help of a specific drug, then the patient gets that drug. So it's very, very individualized. The other side of the coin is there's something called pharmacogenomics, mm -hmm. which is a, 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 an area of research in which um, they're now looking at how individuals respond to specific drugs. There are certain mutations, uh, for instance, in the liver that um, can, uh, if, if you have that particular mutation, your liver enzymes don't break down drugs like warfarin. So uh, that in turn affects the dose that is most effective. So the FDA has approved a long list of precision medicine drugs uh, that uh, have these uh, pharmacogenomic profiles associated with them so that docs can now do that type of testing. The only problem is that a lot of docs are not really getting on the bandwagon. They're really not doing the, the pharmacogenomic testing. Uh, either they don't know about it, they don't believe in it, or um, insurers are not covering it. So it's a work in progress right now. Yeah, and that was going to be my follow-up to that because while the cost has come down significantly, I just don't find people offering it. And I, I, I work with an extremely advanced primary care physician in office here in Atlanta and love them. Bed, great bedside manner, ter manner terrific medicine. Um, you know, they keep me, you know, fairly healthy, which is God bless. Um, but I have not been approached about, you know, genetic testing or genomics or anything of the sort. And I, I guess I just don't hear about it. I hear, you know, I might be in the White House and there's a company that does it that's there or someone like, you know, we'll be out there speaking and there's individuals, companies who are doing it in, in individual cases. But what are some of your thoughts there on why? Um, and I'd love to from both of you. Wh why don't we hear more about this? Because this is extremely important, can be so helpful uh, knowing, you know, knowledge is power. So 
Uh, so part of, the, part of the reason is that, that physicians don't get a lot of in-depth training in medical school on genetics. So there's, and there's a whole movement now in order to, to re-educate docs and to do more CME uh, mm -hmm. seminars so that they can get educated. The other part of it is, frankly, a lot of um, genetic testing does not have value in primary care. I mean, if you go into the doctor's office with a sore throat, there's no reason to right. to run a genetic testing. Whereas if you go in with, with prostate cancer or breast cancer, there, there are a lot of genes that have been recognized to be associated with those diseases. So there's more justification to, to do that testing. John, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, certainly. So imagine... And I think, Paul, this is maybe an example you and I have, have discussed before, that um, I was the second human in the personal genome project to be fully sequenced in the world. And it shows, and if you want to look at my genome, feel free, personalgenomes.org, I'm too, um, that I will develop prostate cancer. And so I'm a vegan. I don't eat any cholesterol. I have my genetics, you know, very good family history and I don't have uh, you know, any uh, cholesterol issues. But yet, so the New England Journal will tell us by default, we should do LDL, HDL, triglyceride and cholesterol testing on every patient. But we should stop looking at prostate specific antigen because over the course of the population, it really hasn't helped. Right. So, you know, maybe in my particular case, if the issue is prostate cancer, as you were talking about, Paul, this idea of maybe testing for certain genetic conditions, understanding certain biomarkers, and then changing lifestyle or medications or monitoring to help avoid badness. Uh, because yes, ankle sprains and sore throats, no role for genetic testing. Certainly for cancers, there are. And what about though, like annual physicals, or maybe you turn over 45 years old or 35 or 40 years old, is there an argument to be made just on an annual physical to have it done at a certain age? Or are we not there yet? Well, I, so I have this crazy belief that what if, let's say, you know, the cost of my genomic sequence was quite high because I was the second human. But imagine that today the cost of a full genetic sequence is about 600 bucks. If at birth every human is sequenced, and then we understand throughout your life how to tailor your care based on a single $600 investment. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you think we're going to save more than 600 bucks? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that would be cost effective, no doubt. Uh, no, no, I don't think it should wait to your next physical exam. Every human should have it now at All birth. Right. Good. That's what I wanted to hear. I completely agree. Um, and I'm going to get mine done. I love it. All right. So go with, moving through the book. Um, Paul, tell us about the chapter, small data, big data, data analytics, um, and your thoughts there. This is the most exciting part of, of precision medicine, in yeah. my opinion. Um, data analytics, I really think, it is, is the future of healthcare, and it's the future of uh, precision medicine. One of the examples that we use in the book, and that we'll, we'll talk about when we uh, speak uh, in March, I think, yep. there's two studies. One of them was done in 2002, the Diabetes Prevention Program. And they took about 3,000 patients who were at risk for diabetes, they didn't have it, and they split them up into three groups. One was a control group, one group got metformin, which is a popular diabetes drug, and the third group was given an intensive lifestyle program. So then when, when they did all the 
the analysis, they found that uh, the two experimental treatments did lower the likelihood of getting diabetes, but only a percentage of patients had less risk. So like you take a thousand patients, you put them on metformin, about seven of them got diabetes and 300 of them didn't. The problem was the researchers couldn't figure out from day one which, one, which patients would and would not get the disease. So they had to take the drug or they had to go through the, the intensive program and get no benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Despite that fact, the researchers said, wouldn't it be great if the millions of patients who are, who are at risk for diabetes be put on one of these two programs? Well, <laughs> that's really not justified. So along comes a researcher named Jeremy Sussman, um, University of Michigan, and they did a much deeper analysis of the raw data from the diabetes prevention trial. And instead of just looking at three risk factors, being overweight, having abnormal fasting blood glucose, and having an abnormal glucose tolerance test, they looked at 17 risk factors and they plugged it into the sophisticated data analytics program. And what they were able to do was figure out more precisely who would be most likely to get the disease and who would most likely not get the disease. So it really gave them a precision approach to predicting the disease and figuring out who should get the treatment and who shouldn't. So that's the type of research that is, re is really going to transform healthcare. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. John, anything you want to add to that on the, on the data? I mean, the importance of data, it's a, that's a big topic, but I think you're, you're a leader here, so I'm going to give you a chance here too. So. Sure. So one of the challenges we have with healthcare data is much of our healthcare data is bad. <laughs> and, and what do I mean by that? So uh, you can't see my hands, but on my left hand, I have a turkey bite, and on my right hand, I have a pig bite. This is what happens when you run an animal sanctuary. Mm -hmm. So I showed my hands to a primary care doc, and I said, will you, of course, go into my medical record and codify that I have animal bites and specify the species? And he said, are you kidding me? You have 12 minutes to see the patient, enter 140 data elements, have 40 quality measurements, never commit malpractice, and be empathetic. I'll just say abrasion. Right. Well, wait a minute. What if I develop some bizarre zoonosis, you know, an infection caused by an animal? And there's zero record of my ever being bitten by an animal. So we just have to understand that the healthcare data as recorded today has limitations. I could not agree more. I'll bring up some good points. So that's all the time we have for today, but join me next week for the conclusion of my conversation with Paul and John about their new book, Realizing the Promise of Precision Medicine, as well as a glimpse into the crystal ball of what we see coming for Hims 18 in Las Vegas. Thank you for joining us today, and please tune in weekdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 a.m. Pacific. As always, you can track me on Twitter at HIT Advisor and use the hashtag ThisJustInRadio so we can respond to your comments from the show. If you missed any of this episode or want to hear more, all my shows are posted on Apple iTunes. SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Google Play, and tune in. Also, check out the new website we launched at justinbarnes.com. Thanks, everyone. Have a terrific week.